Welcome, everybody, to episode six of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I am a suicidologist, and I am the director of the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Schramm. Andrew is a clinical psychologist in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And we're really excited about our episode this month. Uh, We have a wonderful guest that's going to be talking to us about a great topic. But before we get started, I just wanted to take a couple of moments to acknowledge the recent events that we have seen in our country related to gun violence. And while these events are not necessarily related to suicide or may not necessarily be related to suicide, we just want to acknowledge that these are obviously very difficult, very challenging events to be living through, to be experiencing. Even though we may not be experiencing them directly, we are experiencing these events together. And just know that there are a lot of folks that are working in this space that are working on prevention and that we are going to continue to do our best to bring good information to the public on not only suicide, but also gun violence and other types of violence as well. And so just want to acknowledge those events that have happened specifically in Uvalde, Texas, and then just yesterday here closer to home in Racine, Wisconsin, there was a shooting at a funeral. Our hearts and our thoughts go out to those that have been affected. And more than our hearts and our thoughts, I think, is our intentional action um, in working toward better policies, better systems and structures that will hopefully prevent events like this from happening in the future. Just wanted to acknowledge Thanks for acknowledging that, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Andrew. I'm just going to do our quick general reminders before we get started. We do, obviously, through this episode, talk about issues related to suicide. And just want to say, we know that this is a difficult topic. And if you're not in the right headspace to hear this conversation today, that is absolutely okay. Hit pause, hit stop, and come back later. Um, We will be here when you get back. Um, Encouraging you not only to take care of yourself, but to invest in collective um, care with others in your life. Invite others to care for you as well. I know self-care sometimes can seem like a really heavy lift. And so let's aim for that collective care. Also, just a reminder that when we are discussing issues related to suicide, that we are going to be using language that is not stigmatizing. We are going to be using words like died by suicide uh, rather than a phrase like committing suicide, which obviously criminalizes the act and, and definitely stigmatizes the act. And this is just a reminder for you in your daily life to um, think about the language that you're using when you're talking about suicide and try to use language that doesn't further stigmatize folks that are impacted. So our guest for today is Nina Guten. Nina is somebody that I actually met through a group of folks that are working in suicide research, um, folks with lived experience called ICAUSE. Uh, But professionally, Dr. Nina Guten is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Pasadena, California. She also conducts training in suicide assessment, intervention, and postvention. And she facilitates survivors after suicide groups for the Dee Dee Hirsch Suicide Prevention Center. She's also a member of the Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Network. And she is also co chair of the Coalition of Clinician Survivors, 
which supports clinicians after personal and professional suicide losses. And in addition, she has published articles about suicide loss and post-pension. So welcome, Nina, to our episode. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, welcome. Really appreciate your time today. So we're going to go ahead and get started just chatting about your experience, Nina. We have had folks on our episode who have lived experience and living experience of suicide. And I think that when folks think about lived and living experience of suicide, they often think about folks that are either suicide attempt survivors, suicidal thoughts throughout their life, and and kind of are anywhere on that spectrum. But you represent another group that has lived experience of suicide, and that's a group of folks that have lost a loved one to suicide. So Nina, I would welcome you as much as you're willing and comfortable to share your story of lived experience as it relates to suicide. Okay. Well, first, I just want to say I'm actually have lived experience in in both an attempt survivor and a loss survivor. And as I tell my story, hopefully you'll see how they come together. Sure. But in terms of the loss. I, I lost my brother, Jeff, to suicide in 1995. At the time, I was in graduate school to become a clinical psychologist. Um, so it, it was sort of a very strange time. And when at the time that he died, he was seemingly a successful lawyer, but had shared an early traumatic history to put it briefly, uh, we, our mother was addicted to drugs and very volatile and sort of unpredictably abusive. And just a little bit about my lived experience with suicidality. I'd, I'd been suicidal as a child for as long as I could remember, but I was really lucky because after an attempt in my teens, I was able to get exceptionally good treatment, sort of long, long-term long intensive treatment, which uh, both contextualized and validated the trauma. So it not only saved my life, but it gave me what I needed to create a life that I wanted to live. And it also inspired me to become a psychologist myself. But in terms of Going back now to the situation with my brother, he was having a a pretty difficult time as a kid and acting out and in a way that brought uh, the attention of social workers. And basically, at the age of 12, the social workers said to my father, my parents were split at the time, that my brother needed to go live with him. And he said, absolutely. So Uh, My brother went to live with my father, and after that time, things seemed to stabilize for him. He seemed to be doing better. And again, he was able to finish school, graduate, and become a successful lawyer. So, you know, I was glad because he seemed to have pulled his life together. But I became concerned when, and this was a few weeks before his death, he started telling me about these terrifying experiences that from my training, I knew were flashbacks. I didn't tell him that, but he was, what were coming to him in the middle of the night were these memories of some of the trauma that had happened when we were kids. 
And I begged him to go into therapy. And his reply was, no, 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 no. I don't want to know what they are. I just want them to go away. And even though I, had, I tried to convince him that it had really been helpful to me, he just mm -hmm. vehemently refused. So I was concerned, but even so, I was absolutely shocked when I got the call in the middle of the night from my stepmother saying, your brother killed himself. Mm -hmm. And I, the next few months after that were a complete blur. I was sort of dazed and only marginally functional, mm -hmm. but I knew I had to finish my dissertation uh, in my clinical psych program in order to graduate on time and to move on to something I'd arranged for after graduation. So I managed to sort of stumble on through mm -hmm. with the help of a brand new addiction to jigsaw puzzles. My obsession with these puzzles was the only thing that sort of gave mm -hmm. me respite from the kind of relentless grief, guilt, the incessant whys and, and the pain. And I, and I, what I recognize now about it is that they were a sort of a metaphor for the reassembling of the fragments mm -hmm. that were left in the wake of Jeff's loss. But the other thing that really stood out to me about that time were the really surprising reactions of not only the professors and my colleagues in the clinical program, but even from the people who I thought were my close friends, they either avoided me or pathologized me. You know, you're still being too negative. It's been three months. You should be over this by now. <laughs> and so wow. the takeaway from that was that in my chosen profession, that I already knew that I had to keep quiet about my attempt history, but that I also mm -hmm. had to keep quiet about my loss history in order to retain any sense of credibility and respect. Right. Yeah, that intersection of having your own experience as an attempt survivor and somebody that's lived with um, suicidal thoughts for so many years and then experiencing the loss of a brother. Yeah, I can imagine how, I don't even know, the difficult doesn't seem like an adequate word. Um, and I'm so sorry about the loss of your brother. I'm going to hold you in my heart for that loss. Um, and I really appreciate you sharing your own story as well as the story of the loss of your brother. And I think the jigsaw puzzle metaphor is so interesting. I suffer with my own anxiety related issues and I I find jigsaw puzzles to be very meditative and very calming. And so I can definitely identify with that as kind of a practice. And I'm also working on a dissertation and know how challenging it is to be in that space and having everything else going on, I'm sure it was just incredibly challenging. So I appreciate you sharing that experience. And you mentioned this a little bit when we discussed, um, when you were kind of, you know, discussing your story. And I've, I've heard this and I've read this in other places that grief as a result of loss from suicide is different in a lot of ways than grief from, you know, the loss of somebody who may have died from a heart attack or cancer or a non-suicide related outcome. Can you talk about how you feel like that the grief of loss from suicide is a little bit different? Yeah, it, it's different in, in quite a number of ways. 
first of all, it's it's a type of traumatic grief. Um, and so PTSD symptoms like shock and even dissociation are not uncommon. And it's also a, a sort of existential loss. When this happens, it, it really, sh- you know, as I alluded to with the jigsaw puzzle, it sort of shatters all of our basic assumptions about who we are, the way the world works, mm-hmm. who can we trust other people? Can we trust ourselves? Can we trust your own judgment? Again, to the extent that other people are reacting strangely, can we trust the people who we thought were close to us? So everything just seems like up for grabs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what survivors often say are things like, nothing makes sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's the stigma. And we already know that there's stigma in relation to suicide and directed towards suicide, suicidal people. Mm-hmm. But there's also significant research that shows that there's stigma directed towards survivors of suicide loss. Okay. And that the research is actually pretty clear. One study showed that they saw survivors of suicide loss as less likable, less trustworthy, and less worthy of support than survivors of other types of loss. Wow. So, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And that's hard for survivors not to internalize. And that can increase the sense of shame and isolation. Then there are two other things that make it very different. First of all, there's the and I'm going to use the word perceived, the perceived intentionality, the the notion that this was the choice of our loved ones. And what does that necessarily mean in terms of the sense of abandonment, uh, the sense of anger, and all of those extra things? And then the messages that are pretty prevalent these days about preventability when the messaging is aligned with every suicide is preventable, well, what does that mean? That somebody somewhere must have failed. Right. If, if it was preventable, then it was my fault. It was a clinician's fault. So again, that sense of I caused this mm-hmm. uh, sort of deepens the reaction. Right. Yeah, I think, and I, I recently heard, and I think it might have actually been through ICAUSE, that viewpoint around the word prevention when used with suicide. And it was pretty uh, mind blowing for me. You know, I think we've, at least I've been working in this space for a number of years, and I kind of came into the world of suicide research right around the time that zero suicide was coming onto the scene. For those of you that don't know, zero suicide is a quality improvement framework for healthcare systems to prevent suicides among patients that are within a a specific clinical population. And as somebody that hasn't lost someone to suicide, it was like, well, of course. But then hearing the perspective of folks that have experienced a suicide loss and taking a moment and sitting with that, it just, like I said, it it blew my mind and completely changed my view about how we talk about prevention because it, um, 
abs- I can absolutely understand how that type of language would be harmful for folks and, and really hurtful for folks that have experienced a loss. A couple of other things about yeah. the differences that for this type of loss, there's an increased duration and intensity. And so, and again, that gets compounded by all of the things I've talked about before, particularly the stigma and the loss of support that people get for other types of losses. And so all of that can extend things. And having worked with survivors for over 20 years, often people will say the second year is almost more difficult than the first because it's like sharper. People have used that term like that. uh, But you know, Mm -hmm. according to popular American wisdom, everyone should be done with that after a few months. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Mm -hmm. finally, there's a big impact on family systems. There are conflicts about disclosure. Um, There is often blame that gets tossed around like a hot potato. Mm -hmm. And there are different and discordant grieving styles. And this not only varies potentially within gender, but it actually can take on different forms in different cultures as well. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you know, when a family member is lost, people have to take on new and different roles that become more difficult, not only because they don't know how to do that, but also because that role was inhabited by the lost person. Mm-hmm. So it, just in general, it's a lot more complicated. And then there are some themes that are pretty common that are not necessarily there in other types of loss, like the incessant questioning, the why, the how on earth could this have happened? That, you know, from an outsider's perspective, looks like unnecessary rumination. But from the perspective of people who understand suicide grief, it's a normative and healthy attempt to try to put the world back together. Mm-hmm. Try to mm-hmm. create a narrative that makes sense, even if there remains significant ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, things that are probably more well known is, and again, consistent with the stigma, is the sense of shame and often guilt. And sometimes the guilt is filtered through what John Jordan calls the, the tyranny of hindsight. that we assume as as a survivor, it's easy to assume that we should have known then what we know now, even even though realistically, there was no way we could have known. But, you know, and that gets sort of reinforced by the potentially negative reactions of people around us. But ultimately, what people can do with good support is to realize that given what they knew at the time, for the most part, they did the best that they could do and give themselves a fair trial in relation to that. Right. Yeah. Um, Andrew and I work on a study that's talking to survivors of suicide loss. Hmm. And sometimes when we do these interviews, it can kind of wrap up all of these risk factors into a tidy little package that, you know, when you're looking at it with hindsight, seems like there were all these signs 
And I'm always very careful to tell people <laughs> that you were not seeing all of this in the moment that you were living, mm-hmm. that you were, you know, interacting with this person or living with this person. And so I think, yeah, that really resonates with me. And I can, that the tyranny of hindsight is, I think I'm going to use that term because I think it's perfect. Yeah. It's such powerful language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I've got to give Jack Jordan credit for that. He's one of the most beautiful writers about this subject. So you talked a little bit about, you know, how folks can maybe support those that have lost someone to suicide. And we're going to talk about kind of community support in a bit. But in your professional role um, and in your professional opinion, do clinical providers have the training to support, in general, have the training to support individuals who are suicide loss survivors, given that the grief is, is different than what you know, other grief looks like? Generally not. And actually, one of my colleagues did this fascinating study in which they told survivors on their experience with therapists, and they had three cohorts. One were people who were who are grief therapists who are specifically trained in traumatic loss. Um, There was a group of, you know, standard group of therapists with a variety of different types of training and including psychodynamic. And then there were the third groups were specifically cognitive behavioral therapists, which Mm -hmm. tends to be where most of the training takes place these days. And what they found was that on the um, elements that the survivors found helpful, the grief therapists did the best. The standard groups of therapists sort of had mid-range, and then the cognitive behavioral therapists did really badly. And then for the things that were harmful, the cognitive behavioral therapists had the most harm. The mm. mid-range standard therapists were in the middle and the well-trained, the, the, the traumatic grief trained therapist did the best. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really, I think it really speaks to the importance of, first of all, understanding what's normal about this type of loss. So for instance, not treat the guilt as rumination that needs mm-hmm. to be corrected because it's quote unquote irrational, mm-hmm. which is sort of the standard mm-hmm. way to deal with that and to sort of just have a different stance. And so that's why I think it's so important for clinicians to be trained in how this is different and how the types of support need to be different as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think often when we were talking with survivors, you know, we're suggesting that they seek out, you know, therapy or seek out, you know, psychological services. And to your point, I think it's so important to make sure that that training is available. And so hopefully that's something that will be more of a reality in the future. So Nina, given that there's some specialization that's needed maybe for providers to competently work with survivors of of a suicide loss. I'm curious what recommendations you'd make or for learning more about this or what trainings might be available. I know in the past, Jack Jordan had a wonderful, I think it might've been two day training. And currently Vanessa and I, Vanessa McGann and I 
have developed a four-hour training for clinicians, which I'm actually hoping to expand into a full-day training, which can, can include more information about how the loss plays out in different cultural communities, mm. because it's not mm -hmm. one size fits all. One of the things that makes it even more difficult for people who are coming from different communities besides, besides white communities is that even though in a lot of communities of color, the rates are going up, mm -hmm. um, there's still so much uh, resistance within the communities to acknowledge that and not a whole lot of ways to get support within one's own community when it happens. And so then they have to step outside to try to get support mm -hmm. with communities that where everything is normed on, on white people. Mm -hmm. So it can create even more of a sense of isolation. Yeah. And luckily there are people in, in all sorts of communities who are really working hard to get things in place, but it's, you know, that's also an uphill battle. Understood. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about, um, you know, kind of that collective care that I referenced at the beginning of the episode and talk about postvention. So Nina, if you wouldn't mind explaining, you know, how you understand postvention and what postvention is and why it's important in the, in the support of um, suicide loss survivors. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start by quoting Ed Schneidman, who founded yeah. the field of suicidology. He, mm -hmm. he basically said, postvention is prevention for the next generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I didn't really get a chance to talk about that also makes this a unique loss is that the risk for suicide in survivors of loss actually goes up mm -hmm. uh, and that can actually be intergenerationally. Um, and it's interesting because Monica McGoldrick did this study where she looked at intergenerational suicide and found that one of the biggest risk factors for the transmission of this through generations <laughs> was silence. Oh, wow. In the families and non-disclosure. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lack of opportunity to really process the loss. And again, this goes along with the internalized stigma. And so I think it's so important to get good support. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be from a professional. Mm-hmm but it has to be from people who understand this and that can be from other survivors in order to be able to talk about it, to heal and to be able to integrate the loss in a way that reduces that risk. Mm -hmm. And again, because it's such a disenfranchised loss and it's so different from other types of loss, postvention is really important so that people can sort of refine their sense in, in connection with other people mm -hmm. when that can often feel like it's been shattered. And so, you know, I, I could go on about this, but let's just say, I think it's absolutely crucial that postvention be right up there with prevention. It's usually right. left out as like the, 
the ugly stepchild, but <laughs> yeah, I was talking to a colleague not too long ago. Um, and I used the word postvention and he thought it was a word that I had just kind of conjured. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, people that are, um, working in this space, you know, might not even be real familiar with postvention. And so I just appreciate you, you know, highlighting the importance of that. And I'm curious, you, you mentioned that, you know, the support that folks need might not be clinical in nature. It, you know, it could be peer support. So what, what do you kind of see as the role of clinical support versus community and peer support and up in kind of uplifting survivors of suicide loss? Well, my sense is that most survivors, because I've been running groups now for 20 something years, as long as they are in a support, in, in, like in our support groups at D.D. Hirsch, we uh, the groups are sort of run by one professional and one survivor, but I would say about ninety to ninety five percent of the professionals are also survivors. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes me more effective as a clinician is being a survivor and just sort of getting that, and not necessarily applying my experience to everyone else because, as mm-hmm. I noted, it's not one size fits all, but to be able to validate and normalize what can feel like a terrifying and frightening experience. People will sometimes say, I feel like I'm going crazy. This is, mm-hmm. I've never felt this way before. Mm-hmm. I've had other losses and it's never been like this. And those of us who are longer term survivors can say, that's actually pretty normal. You're not right. crazy. This is just the nature of this type of grief. And so that I think, you know, to get support from other survivors is often what people primarily need mm-hmm. to the extent that they do need additional support from trained clinicians. Again, it's really important that the tr- clinicians understand what's different about this type of grief and to understand that. So for instance, or if people are having a significant trauma symptoms that are continuing to impair them, Mm-hmm. understand how that's embedded in this loss and to keep that in mind in terms of treating the trauma mm-hmm. and vice versa if you know if the grief seems to be really really persistent even after a few years to sort of understand what's making it persistent in a way that understands the external factors like stigma and the changes in one's social network Mm -hmm. that can also compound things. Yeah. So you talked about the importance of connection with other survivors of suicide loss, others that have have the shared experience. For other folks that are friends, neighbors, coworkers, others that maybe haven't experienced a suicide loss, but really want to support actively support someone that has experienced a suicide loss, what suggestions would you have for folks that don't necessarily have that lived experience, but still want to help? Okay. Well, first of all, I'll just say that one of the things that is very common is people want to help, but they don't know what to say. They're afraid if I say anything, they're going to say the wrong thing. So they tend to avoid Mm -hmm. because they're just sort of afraid that they're going to make it worse or they avoid the topic mm-hmm. because they're afraid of 
bringing it up and even saying the person's name mm-hmm. might be an activator. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say move past those fears and just say, uh, hey, how are you doing? What do you need? Mm-hmm. Um, what would be the most helpful right now? Mm-hmm. And to listen to the person, um, they might say, right now I just need to be alone right now. I could use a hug. Mm-hmm. Um, they might start crying in which case you might want to just uh, allow your shoulder to get a little right. wet, but to sort of not abandon them because of your own fears, understandable fears and anxieties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you ask them what they want and what they need to the extent that they're able, they can tell you. Wonderful. And to, um, you know, let them tell their own story. Don't try to fill the silence or, you know, try to make sense of it before they can, because their their job is to try to make sense of this on their own. I mean, you can play sort mm-hmm. of devil's advocate and say, well, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? But try not to co-opt that process for them. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as being very similar to, you know, what we talk about when we're dealing with somebody that's having suicidal thoughts themselves is really just listening and listening in a non-judgmental way and just being there. Yeah. And I think the, um, as a friend, as a family member, and I'd like to say as a therapist, that tends to be what, what people need first and foremost is to know that people can listen without judgment, mm-hmm. blaming, and with compassion. Great. Oh, that's wonderful advice. I, I guess part of what is coming up for me as you, as you say that, Nina, is um, you know just not moving away from difficult emotions in those situations. That's someone that's trying to provide support. So I, I just really appreciate what you're saying partly because it's encouraging folks to sit with that and hold space with the person that they're wanting to support. Yeah. And it's hard to bear witness to someone else's pain without rushing in to try to fix it, but it's really, really important to be able to sort of hold back from trying to make someone immediately feel better. And Mm -hmm. the more that, supporters of people with suicide loss and other types of trauma or are suicidal can basically bear witness without the tendency to fix the more the people with the pain will feel heard, will feel validated, will feel held. Mm -hmm. I had a really wonderful therapist once that I just adored say, and I'm, I'm going to misquote her, but the gist of what she said was in Western society, we have this preconceived notion that people are supposed to feel good quickly and all of the time. And that's not how the world works. (laughs) And so that was a pretty revolutionary statement for me personally, that it's okay. (laughs) To um, and I and in in the same vein, I think going into supporting somebody and having that conversation, going in with an expectation that you're not going to feel good, 
and that it's okay that the person that you're talking to isn't feeling good either. And it's really your job to listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think though, what's, what's helpful for survivors, particularly like what we do in the groups is because it's being led by two longer term survivors. We let people know that it's not going to feel this bad forever. Mm -hmm. I run my groups with a wonderful woman named Marilyn, who's at least as good, if not better than many therapists who lost her 14 year old daughter to suicide. And, you know, what we can offer is some hope for survivors that the pain will reduce in, in intensity Mm-hmm. that um, they will be able to find joy again. They will be able to find joy without necessarily feeling guilty about the joy mm-hmm. um, that there will be a new normal mm-hmm. um, that, but that's the, but they will figure out what that new normal will be. And so in some ways, and again, I'm using more of my survivor self Mm -hmm. in this than anything I've learned in school. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so from survivor to survivors, from someone who has been through this and and in some ways emerged in some ways stronger Mm -hmm. um, to be able to kind of offer that kind of hope to newer survivors is really powerful. Absolutely. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about either your experience or this topic that you feel like we didn't cover today? Well, just one one other piece that I think is implicit in one of the things that I've talked about is, and again, this is sort of not only my own experience, but in working with survivors for 20 something years, I've seen this over and over again, that with good support, there's healing, there's integration of the loss, but there's also, uh, you know, I'm going to use the term post-traumatic growth mm-hmm. that often occurs where people want to make something meaningful of their loss mm-hmm. um, and that take, can take all sorts of different forms. For me, obviously, it's, it's moved me into this becoming a very passionate career focus. Uh, other people have become really passionate advocates get involved with um, trying to make changes in all sorts of different domains. And so I've seen that over and over where people are, are taking their intense, horrible pain in the beginning and turning that into ways to try to help others. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for leaving us with that message. And thank you so much for, not only taking the time to share your um, professional experience, your personal experience, your living experience with us, but also, you know, sharing um, suggestions and thoughts for the rest of us who are wanting to uplift and care for folks that have experienced this loss. Oh, I just really appreciate your time and your expertise today. Thanks. And Andrew, I know that you're traveling and I just want to acknowledge my appreciation for you as well for being here and being part of this recording, (laughs) even though you're on the road, this is dedication. Um, So thank you for doing (laughs) that. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Appreciate you. And um, thanks a lot, Nina, for sharing your time with us today. 
You're welcome. You know, I don't know if you'd be interested in this, but, um, you know, Vanessa, McGann and I do the clinician survivor, what's now called the coalition of clinician survivors about mm-hmm. how, how um, in some ways you take this and then for clinicians, it's even more complicated because of confidentiality and mm-hmm. all, and the threat of a lawsuit and all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. And then having to sort of go right back to work and being blamed by colleagues. And so um, either she, I, or both of us together could maybe do one on that. That would be wonderful. I think that would be a really oh, helpful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We will be in touch about that. Thank you. Okay. Uh, for very our, generous of you. Thank you for that. Sure. For our listeners, our next episode coming up in July, it's hard to believe the year's half over already. We're going to be talking to Dr. Barbara Moser, who is a local wonder. <laughs> She's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. I adore her. She'll be talking to us about alternatives to suicide. And so I'm very excited to have her as part of our podcast in June or July. I'm sorry. So stay, stay tuned for that. Can, can I just ask for folks that aren't at all familiar with alternatives to suicide? Do you mind just briefly describing that? Yeah. Alternatives uh, to suicide is a program that provides peer support for individuals that live with suicidal thoughts. And so helps those folks, um, you know, provides a space to be able to talk through those thoughts and also um, helping to kind of manage those thoughts and in a way that's safe um, and non-clinical. So it's, it's a very, um, it's a wonderful peer support model. So I'm very excited to talk to Barbara about that. I I want to uplift Prevent Suicide Wisconsin. If you're local to Wisconsin, has a wonderful network of um, support groups uh, through the Prevent Suicide Wisconsin Network of Coalitions that offers support to survivors of suicide loss. And so if you're local to Wisconsin and you have um, experienced a suicide loss, I would encourage you to check out preventsuicidewi.org for more information on that. And just as a reminder, take some time to take care of yourself after this episode and offer care to somebody else. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available at 800-277-8255. Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you, Andrew. And thanks everyone for listening. 